Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, February 22nd, 2021. I'm John Bob Hortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Uh, guys, we uh, we do have our merch store about to go up at commentarymagazine.com. Uh, I will let you know uh, in short order when it will go up. We have we're going to have basically two two shirts for sale: t-shirts, sweatshirts. One says "Crushing Morosity," and the other says "Keep the Candle Burning." Uh, and uh, you're going to pay through the nose for it because we got high quality merch, and uh, we don't want to lose money on it. So if you want it, you're going to have to pay for it, but you're going to want it. They're attractive. They're really nice, and we'll have a page up for you to order pretty soon. Um, so I don't want to beat a dead horse, uh, but I'm going to beat a dead horse. It's the dead horse we've been beating for a year. <laughs> um, the news out of Israel, which is basically functioning as a gigantic, wouldn't call it a focus group because it's like a, a full-on global what would you call it? Like a experiment, like a global uh, clinical trial. Tri- clinical trial. Thank you. Uh, on the efficacy of the coronavirus vaccine or vaccines. I guess they have one, maybe two. I'm not sure which. Uh, the news is unbelievably great. It's not just that they've done it fast, so it's great for them and all of that. <clears throat> it's that uh, the evidence, because they have they have ino- they have inoculated, I don't know, three million people by now. The evidence is that not only is the vaccine non-toxic, which is to say that they have shown no deaths and no uh, secondary illnesses as a result of of, of getting uh, the vaccine, but that it is astonishingly effective, uh, that it not only uh, alleviates symptoms and prevents you from getting the virus, to a level of close to 100%, like in the high 90%. But the evidence is that it interferes with transmission, which is, I think, that's the missing critical piece of the puzzle that has led here people to say, even if you get the vaccine, you're going to have to continue to socially distance and mask and all of that because the one thing we don't really know because it's a different kind of modality, this vaccine, because of its use of mRNA, was whether or not you could you, you yourself could be immune to the disease, but that you could still in your membranes somehow transmit it and shed virus. If we have 3 million people and evidence says that that is not going to happen, that should be the final, what would you call it? The final, uh, I was going to call it brick in the wall, but it's sort of like the opposite of the brick in the wall. It's the final thing that says, if we get people vaccinated, you can take off your mask. You can go hug anybody you want to hug. You're not giving them the coronavirus. It's over. It is time to move on. If we can get, and that the that you as an individual vaccinated person are not only free from fear of the disease, you should be consider yourself free from the fear that you will 
transmit the disease. And as I say, why we know this is this individual country uh, with a very good healthcare reporting system, this is what it is reporting with a government, by the way, that is not meliorist. It is not, you know, it is not coronavirus uh, skeptical. Bibi Netanyahu has kept that place, has gone into lockdowns four times. And they've just, and he is a, he's a hardliner and they've just lifted the last lockdown in part because of this data. So that's where we are. And, and that is what we are understanding. And yet the saint of the coronavirus, Mr. Coronavirus, Dr. Coronavirus, the 80 year old sage of Bethesda, Anthony Fauci has now informed us that we well we may well be wearing masks into 2022 and that we might have a semblance of normal normalcy by 2022. No no no, approaching a degree of normalcy is his construction which is right. even worse than that because approaching implies we're not there yet and a degree is the most nearest of fractions. Right. That, and he just really enjoys. So we should be careful a little bit about this. There's also another study that came out that's I'm looking at the US news report on this. Um, Pfizer researchers in conjunction with the researchers at the University of Texas studied the Pfizer vaccine on the variants, the scary variants, the UK and South African varieties, and found that it it essentially protected the, the messenger protein, protected against those variants too. It's a little less for Moderna, but still very similar. And accompanying that report in US news is a big political cartoon. And all political cartoons are horrific, of course. But this one is, is even better. So we've had this article which is saying, you know, that everything's going to go away pretty much. If you get this Pfizer vaccine, you're good. The, the cartoon features two people saying, we can relax. The vaccines are working. And behind them is a giant tsunami labeled fourth wave. So there's no there's no relaxation. Even in the articles discussing how you can have some psychological release here. There's no desire to, to have that release. They are, they're actively lobbying against it in the political messaging, even as the studies and the reports are getting better and better and better. It's just well, the CDC guidance hasn't caught up with these studies yet. That's what Anthony Fauci said over the weekend. He said that we don't really know yet, so we have to be maximally cautious. But well, as that, maximum caution, it makes you less interested in listening to him. Well, the public messaging is is deliberately, at this point, deliberately alighting what we know the scientific evidence shows us about limiting transmission and protecting individuals from the virus versus eliminating the virus. The virus is with us. It's with us just like SARS is still with us. These viruses will continue to remain in circulation every flu season for until, you know, who knows when. But I think the the messaging on COVID in particular for the past year has been we have to eradicate the virus. Remember, even Biden's like, I'm going to shut down the virus. You can't do that. That's not how viruses work. But the but again, the the at the beginning of this, as we often said, the idea was to scare people straight, like make them stay locked down, masks on, being cautious. We are past that point now. And this constant messaging of negative, you'll never return to normal is now having a counterproductive effect on exactly the populations that we should be eagerly trying to get um, vaccinated and back to work. And which is, you know, anyone who's been locked down, anyone who's not been able to send their kids to school. This is this is a very crucial moment. And I think we're going to have an interesting uh, few months as we watch how the Biden administration in particular keeps up with this messaging or doesn't, because as we're seeing with Cuomo, 
the autopsy report on how this communication is working is going to come eventually. It might not come as soon as some of us would like, but if he, it, but if this message is having a counterproductive effect on vaccination, we're going to see it in a few months, and that's bad. We need to. I think there needs to be a a lot more pushing from those of us who've been, you know, thoughtful sifters of the evidence now to really push forward on the vaccination message. We're seeing it now. We have Republic reports about members of the Biden administration saying on background or off the record that they're terrified of the fact that so many people are scared of this thing. And many of them are Democratic constituents. But at the same time, their messaging is the the vaccine maybe not might not help you. We introduce one one. I know I'm, I'm being very monopolizing of this conversation here. But one more thing that has been causing the rounds this morning is this report from NBC New York local report. um, And the headline is what's safe after COVID-19 vaccination. Don't shed masks yet. And it goes on to describe what we've been describing, how everybody's really, really cautious. We don't have the data. We don't really know if vaccines are effective, even though we do know the vaccines are effective, but they still want you to get the vaccine, right? So the final two graphs say basically that the benefits of this vaccine are entirely psychological, that you will feel quote, less anxiety when you go run errands, for example. Or if you see your friends and family, you still have to be masked up, of course. You can't really get too close to them. But you can have, quote, less anxiety about having contact with these people. Why? Why would you have less anxiety if it's not at all effective? So, Abe, let's talk a little about despair. Because what I'm hearing from people now a year into into the pandemic regime, which is, I think, where we are this week, is a kind of... Uh, what is the term in, in cognitive therapy? Learned hopelessness. It's like uh, uh, you, you've been bitten so much, you've been sort of bitten by so many dogs so long that you see a dog and you run away, right? Or something like that. Um, that um, uh, you'd say, oh, you know, it's not congruent with the, the facts of the moment, which are that there's a vaccine there, you're going to get it, and then you're not going to be able, you're not going to get sick anymore. And life is going to start turning to normal, and people just don't seem to believe it, and they and they they then project their anxiety onto other things, like how come I can't get a vaccine appointment fast enough? And yeah, and uh, you know, can we do X or can we? We're not going to be able to do Y. Nothing's going to be open. And look at listen to Fauci and all of that. Um, how significant psychologically do you think this despair is? as a, you know, just like anecdotally or with friends or anybody like that? Um, I think it's, I think it's an enormous problem. Um, and I think it's, it's being contributed to um, by a kind of, I mean, when we talk about the, the mixed messages and, and the, and the, the kind of counseled hopelessness and, and actually what they're really counseling when we talk about, you know, these, Articles saying that you should continue to wear masks and and after being vaccinated and all the rest of it, they're sort of saying, "Look, we want you to be superstitious. Um, this is the way to approach this crisis is is with superstition. That 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 will cover all the bases. Um, and the and the problem is not just the despair in itself, which that produces. It also contributes to the kind of paranoia and conspira- conspiracy theorizing that we see everywhere, right? Because the question is why? Why why do they want to keep us in masks, indoors, inside our homes, without going out? If the vaccine is supposed to work, why can't we go out after the vaccine? And it feeds this kind of, you know, there. if, if you look online, and this is, I don't even know what to call this 
kind of fringy um, uh, conspiracy uh, uh, theorist sort of collective out there. But there are there are all the because it's not left and it's not right. It's it's something. It's a it's an unholy alliance between the two. And there's all this talk about they want to do this because they want to shift in. You know, this is the larger kind of crazy stuff. They want to shift in governance between they 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 don't they they don't want um the government to work for you they want you to become dependent on the government and as long as they can keep you dependent on the government then they can control you and blah, blah. and that no, no i don't think that's why i mean i think i think the why is is why they're giving these terrible mixed messages and why they're continuing to counsel despair and superstition in the face of this excellent scientific data about about our being able to get out of this. I think they're doing it because there has been a cowardice on the part of leadership to say anything declarative um, about where we're headed. Um, they are so of uh, there is such a fear of saying by uh, X date, we will be here. Uh, and uh, if you do this, you will be fine just in case they will be called out on anything um, and exposed as as not having been uh, uh, perfect. I think that's right. But there's also an element of this that I'm very sympathetic to because I share the concern. And that is a, a deep concern over the prospect of social stratification. If you go back to Israel, for example, their their public health messaging is basically the opposite of ours. It is we're going to reopen. People who get the vaccine are going to get vaccine passports. And if you don't, you're going to be left out. And that's a direct quote. Quote, anyone who does not get this vaccine will be left behind. That's Israel's health minister um, said that over the weekend. In Tel Aviv, for example, you have you can get your uh, shot at a bar. You get a jab at a bar and then it says, like, here's your shot and then go get another shot. It, the, the messaging there is twofold. One, there's obviously an incentive there. But the second, which is brilliant, is that it communicates public that on the other side of vaccination is normal life right and that's that does that doesn't seem like a bad thing to say but israel is also offering these passports they're also giving you you know actual physical proof that you're part of this new situation and i find that to be very concerning in a lot of theoretical ways um i'm not sure how to reconcile that concern with the necessity that we have to produce a vaccinated population and promote vaccination and create incentives on the other side of vaccination. This is, a, this is something I, I struggle with. But Democrats are much more concerned about the prospects of economic, racial, social stratification um, than even you know most conservatives are. And it's a valid thing to be concerned about. But I think the, those concerns might be affecting how they approach this whole condition. Well, and then that, vaccinated. And that is an, th- there's another incentive here. And if we're going to be deeply cynical, which I think at this point we must be to be responsible, there's the political incentive that, that the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress now have, which, which we've talked about off and on for the past few weeks. But to get this big, huge relief package passed, you can't be giving people a lot of optimistic, positive news, particularly about the economy reopening and, and getting back to work and getting back to school, because the, the alarmist message has to be prioritized right now so that there's this sense of urgency, right? The sense of urgency is married to this idea of fear and anxiety about the virus. If you remove the fear and anxiety and say, look, it's great, life's going to get back to normal, you lose some of that urgency. So we'll see if they get this passed, what happens with the messaging. Look, that is a vital point. The, The Biden administration wants to be able to say that help is on the way and we've delivered the help. To that to that end, they created this fictitious and really kind of gross 
narrative that they were left with no plan and they were left with no vaccine and they were left with nothing. Uh, it's fascinating because we spent four years talking about the lies of the Trump administration. And that's fine. The Trump administration lied through its teeth and Trump didn't know how to tell the truth. And that's true. This was a cynical, developed lie in order to claim victory over the virus, since that was the thing that Biden said that he was going to do. That was his number one promise as president. He would be straight with us, he would be sober, and he would do this, and then he would manage it and get us out of it. So having been handed a vaccine or vaccines and a distribution system and a and a, a program to make sure that there were freezers that could hold both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines and this and that and state by state, all of that, all of that was in place and a million people a day were getting vaccinated. And they said, oh my God, we came in, the, the, you know, the, the pantries were empty and there was no distribution plan. That's a lie, right? I mean, it's like a naked, bold face, bald faced lie and people promulgated it because they were because uh, liberals were so relieved to have Trump out that they they want people to believe that this one thing that they did okay they did badly right so that's that's number one and then number two is they want to be able to say help is on the way and we delivered it so first help is on the way because we're fixing it so that you can get the vaccine and if we hadn't come in that wouldn't be the case and the second is here comes the money we are now bringing you the money we're bringing you the relief we are doing this for you if it takes till march for that bill to be signed at the White House, when Biden will use the phrase help is on the way, you or some variant of it, we will have had two months of them destroying the national spirit in order to create the conditions for their version of the mission accomplished banner. And I think that's really, really, really gross. And I can say that, you know, I got three kids. It is, they are it is wearing on them like a uh, leaf blower wears on your last nerve a year of this. And, you know, my kids are in school and stuff like they are not, they're not in like the condition that, you know, Christine's kids are in where they're barely in school. They're in school, but it is a year and it could have been 10 months. It could have been 10 months in this sense, emotionally where they said, here comes the virus. Help is on the way. We're really excited. We're reopening schools and we're doing this and we're doing that. And, 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 and you will be back, you know, by June, everything will be back to normal. Even if it's not true, even if it's not effing true, why is it better not to think that? Somebody, but they will. Me, but they why will. is it better to think that you're going to be in a mask for another year than to think that you are not going to be in a mask in six months. But if the theory is accurate, then they will pivot on a dime to say, well, you know, the, the research is pretty clear when it was, we were being prudent and deferential and now we have all the evidence and we're going to, we're going to recommend, you know, basically return to status quo ante with some exceptions and some precautions in place, because, you know, even if you're right, they have, we have the, the economic uh, backing now we have the backstop there that'll help us and the vaccines are super effective and so here it is 
But the, prob- the problem is that we account for this period. We're all just going to memory hole it. But see, I think I think I hope that's true just for everyone's sake. But I think there's a danger in which they're not. Uh, and the, the battle with the teachers unions is the canary in the coal mine for this broader problem. You have they have created a habit of mind and a pattern of behavior among the people that is going to make it much harder for them to buy into that message. And you're seeing this even with like kids who uh, the parents are like, they're fearful of their kids returning to school because they've actually absorbed the message. Like so the message was heard, but it's the wrong message. So to pivot immediately, I wonder how many people are going to then say, well, but wait a minute, you were just telling us that we shouldn't be, that it's not safe, that it has to be 100% safe. We have to eradicate all the virus. Everyone has to be vaccinated. My kids aren't vaccinated yet. You can see where the habits of mind that have been formed over the past year for a lot of Americans, understandable as they are, will actually work against that messaging if they try it. Right. Well, so you have a bifurcated circumstance, which is uh, people are getting the wrong message, but they're getting the wrong message uh, because it is the determined view of the American elite and the the leading national politicians and media to speak in dark terms about something that took a turn for the positive unambiguously in December, notwithstanding the the surge of of cases and the tragic surge of deaths. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's much easier to get a large group of people to be scared for their lives than it is to get them to be um, optimistic. Right. So if if they needed if they needed the same population to do both at different times, they're going to have there's going to be a large holdover of the scared for their lives folks that aren't that aren't going back. Right. But I mean, you know, seriously, how many people in America, if you if you it's like one of those things, it's like the jaywalking on Jay Leno or something. You pull three people off the street and you say, uh, you know. Compared to a month ago or six weeks ago, how many are, are the same number of people in the hospital with coronavirus as was the case a month ago? How many of them know that that caseload has dropped by half? How many? Is that what's leading the news? Is the fact that we hit the spike in January and that we are on this vertiginous drop and collapse in the number of cases and the number of and the you know in the number of deaths and all of that is that what people know I really doubt that they know that ordinary people because the message is not being told because there is this bizarre not only this kind of emotional focus on on the bad news mm-hmm. but this determined decision that is being run by people and we can never say this enough including people like us who are perfectly capable of doing their jobs not at their offices and living their lives not in their own homes they can do that imagine that they couldn't I'll be interested to hear. It's a good point because actually we have reached a really grim milestone this week, which is half a million American deaths from COVID. And tonight, uh, President Biden is is scheduled to speak about that and have a sort of memorial. I'll I'll be listening very carefully to the choice of his message this evening, because on the one hand, absolutely, we should we should grieve those lives lost. On the other hand, it is a it is a unique opportunity he has to talk about where we are going forward. 
Um, and if he doesn't take that opportunity, then the, the cynical political uh, push that's happening will be made transparent. And Abe, I think this is a very, this is your, this has been your long-term point about the, the um, elusive aspect of the virus that is so maddening, which is that we've had this surge, we've had 150,000 deaths in the last, I don't know, two months or something like that. Horrible does not seem to be following any kind of observable or understandable pattern. So much so that every time you get one of those sort of social media outbreak hysterias over whether or not X or Y thing is a super spreader event, then it's not a super spreader event. It's not happening from them. It's not that that's not what's doing it. Like the Super Bowl uh, party. Right. Yeah, the Super Bowl party, the yeah. almost everything, uh, the Biden party uh, that uh, and, and, Muriel and, Bowser went to in in in, uh, in Wilmington, and you know the other um, aspect of it that that really makes you think that you know as you, as you say, sort of like colloquially, the virus is going to do what it's going to do, um, is that because there's no connect, there's no observable pattern that connects our behavior to its trajectory. But there is a pattern when you look at what happens globally with the virus, it seems to go up and down in tandem everywhere, um, virtually everywhere, um, regardless of what each location has been doing to mitigate the spread or to open up. The, the, the pattern stays the same. Now, that is not to say, and I think this is an important uh, qualification you have to make, this is not to say that reckless behavior in relation to the virus would not have made these numbers far worse. That's, that's an important, because you can look at this and say, is, and, and go fatalistic and say, there's nothing you can do, so what the hell? You know, just do whatever you can do, live your life and whatever, and if you get it, you get it, you'll die or you won't die. That's wrong. Because, I mean, viruses do transmit. If you can do anything to, to break the transmission for yourself, for your families, for your, the people in your immediate vicinity, you would and you should do that, right? It's, uh, and, um, but, you know, what we know... But there are just other factors they, here, yes. Yeah. I mean, California has now lapped every other state in terms of, you know, transmission, and they had these pretty severe lockdowns. Now, again, it could have been... To, Maybe it would have been twice as bad if they hadn't. I don't know how you run in the community. It's just absent from people who do think that the virus behaves in predictable ways and that primarily your Republican voting affiliation is one of the primary vectors of transmission. Um, The president's uh, COVID czar, Andy Slavitt, has spent the last year on Twitter posturing from a position of authority the saying exactly how the virus behaves. It behaves in this way and this way and this way. And these Republicans are doing X, Y, and Z and they're being terrible about it. And that's why it's going to be bad there and not bad here. Yeah. Um, you know, he went so far as to accuse Ron DeSantis of misleading the public on COVID numbers crisis and called the accusation against Andrew Cuomo a white right wing meme. He was very con- confident in his position. You know, what, I, I need to cite, I need to uh, uh, cite a, an important factoid 
and then move into uh, discussing our first uh, sponsor. Well, the briefly, Bronson though, group. we got to say what Andy Slavitt said, which made him made this Sorry. contrition so valuable. Is that not only has he been making this attack on Ron DeSantis pretty clear and trying to absolve um, Andrew Cuomo, he was asked directly about what you just said, John, yeah. about the fact that California's numbers are roughly have rough parity with Florida's. And one state is in total lockdown and the other one hasn't been for months and months and months. And he was asked about this directly and he says, you know, there's there's just so much about this virus that we think we understand, that we think we can predict. That's just a little bit beyond our explanation. This virus continues to surprise us, which is welcome and due contrition and obvious to everybody who's been observing this for a year. It was just politically impalatable to say that when Donald Trump was in the Oval Office. Right. Okay. so here's what I need to cite to you. Okay. Total increase in per capita uh, mortality from 2019 to 2020. So this is the end of 2020. This is the this is this number of excess deaths, right? Uh, you know, how many deaths do you have in a year that seem outside the bound, or you know that that exceed the previous years or the average or something like that? So here I'm going to cite three states and the national average. New York total increase in per capita mortality went up 30 percent. California, 18.6%. The national average, 16.9%. Florida, 14.8%. So not only is Florida below California and below New York and half of New York's total increase in per capita mortality, it is below the national average, right? Where did I get this little factoid? I got it from my friend David Bonson, the head of the Bonson Group. That's why I wanted to talk to you about David. David runs a bi-coastal management firm with uh, two and a half, a little more than two and a half trillion, a billion dollars. <laughs> trillion, that would be good for him. Two and a half billion dollars uh, under management. Uh, Larry Kudlow, the former head of the Council of Economic Advisors, has now joined the firm to help him, uh, which is exciting news for him. And uh, David has been uh, somebody that I have relied on very heavily uh, because of his uh, knowledge and handling of uh, complex macro data about the United States, something he learned from his own uh, history and experience of doing financial analysis. And uh, and uh, he has applied uh, a lot of these lessons to understanding uh, the data that come out of COVID. And he will inform you of all of this in his two internet products, the dctoday.com, a daily examination of market trends, market forces, and the interplay of politics and policy, and his weekly dividendcafe.com, which takes a broader macro look at the condition of the United States and what is going on both politically and in the market. So if you need to understand how uh, your financial situation will uh, change, adapt, thrive or 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 go through rough seas these two newsletters the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com are vital and they will also provide you uh here and there with completely useful and very helpful graphs and charts and numbers understanding uh the circumstances that we now find ourselves with covid so take a look at the Bonson Group for your financial management and financial understanding needs as the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti that dominates the financial advice and management industry. That's the Bonson Group, and we thank them. 
for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Um, so uh, we have what appears to be the first confirmation scalp uh, in the, uh, and it's the person that we thought was going to be the confirmation scalp when all the first Biden appointments were announced. That is uh, Dira Tandon, the head of the Center for American Progress and uh, the nominee to be the director of the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, Democrat senator, said he didn't like her. And uh, assuming that all 50 Republican senators vote against her, uh, Manchin makes 51 and she goes down. Uh, Does this have any larger meaning? Because, I mean, if you, you know, every Obama, I believe, went through two or three was it Commerce Secretary? I can't remember. There was uh, every administration, including ones that win in landslides, end up with problematic nominees for confirmation. So um, if Biden has one, that's a low. That's a low number, right there. I think uh, didn't um, Trump lose his first Labor Secretary nominee? I mean, you know, it's like it's this is a thing that happens, including when you have the control of the Senate. Does it have a larger meaning? Andy Pudzer, Trump lost. Right. Obama lost um, Judd Gregg, if you remember, because he was he he had this weird. He was like, a Republican. That was a Judd, yeah. Judd Gregg, a Republican senator from uh, New Hampshire. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot. Of, a lot of it was was very theatrical and posturing, but he did do, yeah. try to maintain some continuity with yeah. um, his defense secretary and yes, Gregg and like. He, making some offers to Republican nominees, but the Democrats controlled the process and they weren't too thrilled with him. Right. Anyway. So, so we actually thought when Neera Tandon was announced that she was put up in order to lose, it would be helpful to her. If she lost, she'd go back to cap and raise money off having been, you know, monstrously treated. And that this was almost comic and cynical. And then they got control of the Senate. So then it's like, yeah, she, maybe she'll get through and she's not going to get through. This reminds me of my, one of my favorite jokes or, or bits on my favorite sitcom, The Odd Couple, when uh, Oscar, uh, who is a gambler, you know, is in debt and Felix uh, lends him a lot of money. And uh, he then pays Felix back. And Felix says, where did you get the money? And he said, well, I, I hocked my saxophone. And Felix said, I, I didn't know you played the saxophone. And Oscar says... I don't. I just keep it for hawking. So it's like near Tandon was the saxophone that you hawk. You know, not not anyone who they actually thought was going to end up. Okay, but she she was she was a poor choice, as we said at the time. Like she was a poor choice to begin with. If Biden's message was you know the kumbaya, let's all get beyond the the horrible Trump years. She was a version of Trump on the left, like really horrible. Uh, toxic tweets. She doxed one of her own employees who had come forward with a sexual harassment allegation in front of other employees. I mean, she's raised a lot of questionable money from a lot of questionable entities. I mean, she wasn't an obvious pick for this job as a manager even of her own uh, en- uh, empire. She's proven to be ill-suited to that job and, and to scale it up to, to OMB seemed a, a, a big mistake. So I'm happy to see her go down in flames and maybe, you know, she'll not return to Twitter, but i you're probably right, John. She'll use this to just raise even more money, but at least she won't be running OMB. She was the definition of unconfirmable. She was never going to get through a Republican Senate, and now she can't get through a Democrat-controlled Senate. By definition, 
she is unconfirmable to this position. It shouldn't be that difficult to admit that at this stage. But, you know, you see the usual suspects saying things like, oh, it's just because she's South Asian. She's yeah, I know. There's skin. such deep, deep, deep resent- racial resentment against South Asians running it's the near of management budget. Well, others claimed it was sexist. I mean, they, were, they trotted out all the usual suspects. Everybody to blame. gets their right at the apple. This is great for everyone. Nobody. I will, I will tell you. I, an OMB. Republicans get to claim a scalp. The moderates get to say, yeah, we demonstrated our moderation. We're so moderate. They're going to approve the thing in, in, in a little bit, and they get cover for that. Cap gets to raise a ton of money. The usual suspects get their racial bias, you know, their as isms confirmed. Everybody wins. So exactly. do do we think that the Neera Tandon nomination was a conspiracy? That it was understood that she was probably going to lose? and she I do. I said it for minute one. I'm on record saying that she was offered up as a sacrificial lamb. Right. But the, when, does when does was she know, was does she know that she was a sacrificial lamb? And I'm thinking that maybe she, maybe she knew. I don't know. I don't know. She I did say, delete all those tweets. So, <laughs> I would say this one. I would say this one thing, which is that uh, the the irony here is that of all cabinet positions, the one the president arguably uh, probably shouldn't or not confirmable positions. The one that arguably really shouldn't be a confirmable position is OMB. The OMB director is basically a staffer of the executive branch, uh, working in the executive office of the president. Um, there, it's a weird kind of separation of powers issue that OMB comes under congressional scrutiny in this way. Um, it would be almost as though the president could have the right to fire the head of the congressional budget office. It's kind of odd. Uh, I mean, uh, and, and, you know, if it's, it's almost like one of those things where if the president really wants this person at OMB, he should probably ha- get to have the person he wants at OMB because that's, and you know, basically an assistant to him, but whatever. So, so if she's the one who goes down. She's the one who goes down. There's a interesting as uh, Javier Becerra, who was the nominee for Health and Human Services, goes up before the Senate today, uh, and that arguably should be the the biggest fight in the Senate. Uh, Christine, why don't we lay out why that is? Well, one of the most controversial positions he's staked out uh, publicly is uh, wanting to provide federal health coverage to undocumented immigrants. Um, this is, I think, not going to fly well with even some moderates, just because both because of the cost and the optics right now in the middle of a pandemic. So uh, hopefully he'll be getting some tough questions about that. And also, you know, he will his agency will be in charge of a large it is in charge of a large part of the pandemic response. Um, and vaccination response from the federal government. So there's just a lot of uh, logistical questions that he's going to have to answer. And I'll be curious to see if the equity overlay that we've seen the Biden administration try to place over every single agency and every nominee will also be uh, uh, play out here. And he should be questioned about that, particularly by uh, Republican senators, about what equity in vaccine distribution and equity in pandemic response looks like and how that's different from just the public health response we should be pursuing. Right. Now, guys, I want to mention uh, we have a new uh, sponsor today, Honey, which is not the delicious uh, bee-created substance, but a fantastic 
way that you can uh, get yourself bargains online because we all shop online now more than ever, right? We've all seen that promo code field taunt us at checkout. Put in a promo code, get a discount, right? But you don't know what the promo code is. But thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. Honey supports over 30,000 stores online. They range from sites that have tech and gaming products to popular fashion brands and even food delivery. So imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites. When you check out, the Honey button drops down. All you have to do is click apply coupons, wait a few seconds as Honey searches for coupons it can find for that site. And if it finds a working coupon, you'll watch the prices drop. I mean, you know, uh, over time you can save on clothes, you can save on gadgets, you can even save on pizza, you can save on a pair of headphones, whatever it is that you're trying to buy, Honey might be able to find you that coupon that will get you that discount that you deserve. Uh, I, like everybody else, have found myself increasingly shopping online. And, uh, you know, I'm very excited to try this and see how it works. Honey has found it's over 17 million members, over $2 billion in savings. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash commentary. That's joinhoney.com slash commentary. Um, I was struck by something last week, uh, getting into a more uh, a fancier, uh, less uh, immediate uh, topic. I was struck very much by um, Ezra Klein, the newly minted columnist and podcaster at the New York Times. I had a piece last week in which he was discussing uh, Heather McGee and her views of, uh, of the economy and uh, poverty and various other aspects of American uh, life and the hard, the hard hardships that um, people with uh, limited means and limited social capital go through. And he said flatly in this piece that um, basically there is no dignity in work, that there is a, a horrible misunderstanding that Welfare reform, uh, as it was uh, laid out in the 90s, signed, uh, you know, signed into law by Bill Clinton, that welfare reform posited that there was an extraordinarily positive aspect to compelling people to work rather than, uh, rather than live on uh, welfare and, and get benefits from the government, that it was empowering, it was... Uh, uh, soul enhancing, um, that it meant that you were, you're taking personal responsibility for yourself and the fate of you and your family was something that would, uh, uh, make you a better person, basically make you a better citizen, make you a better parent, make you a better and, and put you on the path to a better life because all of these things would uh, create the conditions under which you became a more reliable employee, a more valuable employee, somebody who understood your value in the market and could demonstrate it to an employer uh, and become somebody in demand, thus uh, increasing your financial value, your financial worth, and uh, and your earning power. 
And uh, increasingly, it seems, uh, liberal and leftist economists are finding this line, particularly in relation to women and, the, and, the, and, and mothers of young children, are finding this line unpersuasive. And they're saying you're forcing mothers to choose between work and their children. Uh, we're not, you're not providing them with uh, enough help for childcare, so their children are being neglected. They are making this horrible Hobson's choice where they have to work for very limited amounts of money. Their children are going un, unprotected or you know, not, not getting the kind of uh, raising that they deserve. And so you have this kind of odd um, uh, confluence of uh, leftist economic views, which are that, you know, um, and 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 very conservative opinions about mothers and children and how it would be more valuable, all things considered, for a mother to be the primary caregiver for her children than anybody else, and that um, this was something that was anathematic uh, among liberals for many years because the idea was you didn't want to act like child care, people who sought child care were worse parents, and that in fact maybe it's better, it's socializing to be in daycare, socializing to be somebody in a, you know, in a, you know, in a social situation from an entire, very, very young age, and that you're more isolated if you're home alone with your parents and all of this. Um, But the flat declaration that work, there is no dignity in work, I think takes this to a very interesting new level that uh, is either self-defeating or suggests the kind of discontinuity between classic conservative ideas about personal responsibility and the, and, and the work ethic that uh, undergirds it and, uh, and the, I would say, liberal to socialist view uh, that work exists solely to provide you with the financial wherewithal to do other things that are better in life. Christine, where I, I mean, am, am I summarizing this right, or what am I? What am I missing? Yes, there's uh, there there are a lot of contradictions that that actually the Ezra Klein piece throws into high relief. If you've been following this debate, uh, you pointed to a really important one, which I think we uh, I, I want to spend just a second. Uh, outlining. And that's that I I think it's still the case that if you're a member of the elite educated class and you're female, there is still this argument that it's better to be in the workplace. And the difference is that then if you're progressive or liberal, you want to argue that people who aren't at your status and elite place and, and don't have careers, they just have wage jobs, should not have to go to work and you, they should be paid for their domestic labor in a way that you yourself outsource to others, often those same women who you're now claiming should be paid for their homework. And I, I do think it's interesting that the, that the character in his column, the person he chose to, to center a lot of his argument around was a woman named Lavender. She's 39 years old. She has six children. She's a single mother. There is no mention of the fathers in this. Where's the dad? Um, there's no mention of child support, which actually fathers are legally obligated to pay if they have children w- with a woman. Um, and it's also noted that at 39, she's already a grandmother, which means one of those six children has her- herself or himself already had a child at the age of, say, 19 or 20. So that whole discussion, which actually is a lot of what started the discussions about welfare reform, whether the government paying people to be home actually 
had this weird effect of undermining family stability because you actually had more likelihood of having money coming through the door if you didn't have a father in the household. That was a that was a beginning point for talk of welfare reform. Then it became about work and dignity. Now I think what Ezra Klein is arguing is that if you can't if, if you're not educated or, or at a point in in uh, society where you can get work that isn't just wage labor, then it's inherently undignified. So you should be paid to stay home. And he is married to someone who wrote a whole book about the universal basic income. It should be noted. However, if you're an elite, you should be able to have a whole bunch of government support for your choices to be in the workforce, whether you're male or female. And actually, men should be forced to stay home more because that's you know more equal. There's a whole lot of contradictory arguments being made here, even apart from the economic choices. But this argument of paying people for their domestic labor, that is a tenet of socialism. This idea that you should absolutely, the government should be paying people to do, you know, to wash dishes and to do their laundry because that is labor that contributes to the economy. The idea of paying that, there's always been a radical feminist argument for this. That we're seeing revived now. I'm actually going to write a post about this because the New York Times over the weekend also interviewed a radical feminist uh, uh, scholar who are, has been arguing this since the 1960s. So it's a really interesting amalgam of stuff, a lot of it contradictory. And well, at if no you, time, really, really, at, at no time in history, in any place on the planet, did paying people not to work instill dignity? I mean, so so exactly if, if, that should be a bumper sticker. <laughs> that is a very that's a very deep point. Go on, Abe, yeah. No, so if 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 we're, if there's no dignity in work, what is there dignity in Re- receiving money not to work? Certainly not. I mean, there's dignity in child rearing. I think one part of the argument that I find persuasive is this idea that even though the economy doesn't reward it with a paycheck, raising your children is 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 dignified, important labor. It is labor. It's not all fun. It's a lot of it is work. But is it work that the market should be commoditizing and rewarding? That's a different question. Should the government be paying you to do it? Yeah. That's, well, you know, I, just, just, honestly, I'm sorry. I, I, think- I just want to add to my point just very quick because I just remembered a data point. You know, in Sweden, there's a, there's a, there was a huge chunk of the population that was on disability uh, because they had this dis, their disability um, um, uh, laws were such that you could anyone could sort of get on it. Um, and what happened was they got this. They it became clear to them that they had this huge problem that they couldn't that this population who had been on disability for so long was um, catastrophically depressed, um, and and they were capable of working, um, but but just receiving disability payments that they could support. So there was this whole national effort to try to figure out how to get them back into functioning humans in the real world. Um, that is what happens uh, when you pay people not to work. I'm sorry. Yeah, just to, no, no, just to briefly um, pivot off what Christine was saying is that I, I, I genuinely don't think anybody who's a real, uh, real devotee of the notion of a, a universal basic in, uh, income really wants to incentivize family life. In fact, it may sound very conspiratorial, but I think it is their desire to uh, reduce the, um, the conditions in society that promote a nuclear family, because nothing is so valuable to uh, disaggregate the family. Nothing is so effective at that as a universal basic income. Um, It's been tried in Finland. It's been tried in Ontario, Canada. It was tried in the United States and New Jersey with a negative income tax in the late 1960s. And the effects have been pretty plainly observed that the inducements to maintain uh, a nuclear family, the inducements or uh, the a father to go to work and a mother to do uh, housework, the, you know, the, the role, gender roles that were traditionally associated with nuclear family broke apart. And that 
if you really scratch a radical socialist uh, who's beholden to economic values, that's not something they don't find valuable. The dissolution of the nuclear family, the reduction of those kind of ties. And, you know, this is Russell Kirk. And it's, it is the most uh, compelling um, unit of economic and social organization to promote values that are antithetical to the kind of collectivism that a socialist desires. So breaking apart the nuclear family is an objective. It's not one you say out loud, but it is an objective. Remember over the summer. Effective way to do that. Over the summer, the, when when reporters, certainly conservative uh, reporters, were pushing back on the Black Lives Matters, you know, sort of statements of principles. One of the things they initially had in their statement of principles was, you know, undermining, um, not undermining. They used a, they used a, like a more disruptive silicon, disrupting the nuclear family was yeah. put in there, and they actually removed that because they were getting a lot of uh, their sort of mainstream liberal supporters were saying, "Yeah, this looks kind of bad." That doesn't mean they don't believe it. Like the radical Marxist organizations have all long. <laughs> had that as their goal. Take, take, take a couple of minutes today to survey the opinion landscape on the left, the nation, Mother Jones, you know, that your usual suspects. You won't take long before you dig deep enough to find, you know, links to kinder communismus. Look. Which, or right. very Bolshevist notions about how we should disrupt the nuclear family in order to facilitate the kind of educational regime that we want to to create. I mean, is selfish. It was selfish yeah. to the Bolshevist thinkers. In the end, what we have here socially is the single most condescending and uh, and uh, parochial view of human life that you could possibly imagine, which is that unless you are a thought worker. What you do conveys no value to you uh, unless you are somebody who uh, does something that uh, comes out of reading books or comes out of manipulating data or comes out whatever, that um, rather than the idea that people who have to do things with their hand, that doing things with your hands, however you want to, however you want to categorize it from uh, cleaning a restaurant to manu- or to working on an assembly line, to changing a tire, to driving a vehicle, whatever it is, that, th- that this is inherently less emotionally, spiritually, or personally valuable than the work that is done by people who get good grades and go through school and graduate and go to college and come out of college and do what they do. This is a huge issue. This is the corruption of the merit. This is what people talk about when they talk about the corruption of the meritocracy, that this distance, this inability to understand that all kinds of people live all kinds of different lives with all kinds of different structures. And as long as they are, as long as what they do conveys to them the sense that what they do is a value, it is a value. Value is inherent in the way you deal with what you do, uh, and that is for anybody and everywhere, and this notion that I can't imagine doing what you do, therefore what you do must not be of any spiritual, personal, emotional, intellectual, or legacy benefit to you, um, suggests the nature of the corruption of the American elite, particularly, you know, uh, from a columnist in the New York Times. Before we, before you, I ask you to respond to this, 
you know, very uh, uh, serious and profound uh, act of uh, slighting of uh, uh, some people. I do need to talk to you about our final advertiser today, Quip. But you got to give me a second because the, the ad disappeared from my screen. So if you just give me a second, here we go. Here we go. Uh, yes. Okay, look. Brush, brush, you got to floss, but do you got to chew gum? You know what? Gum is the unsung hero when it comes to better oral health. The American Dental Association actually recommends chewing sugar-free gum for 20 minutes after meals. Uh, We all chew gum, but not all gum is created equal. Some might come in fancy packaging, but they only cover up bad breath. Others are loaded with sugar that can wreak havoc on your teeth. Luckily, the oral care experts at Quip have now made a gum that stands out from the pack, one that can help prevent cavities, and it tastes great, too. It was only a few years ago that Quip reinvented the toothbrush for the modern age, and they've done it again this time for chewing gum with the gum that's actually good for your oral health and comes with a dispenser that will remind you of the one-click candy you love as a kid. It prevents cavities and freshens breath when chewed for 20 minutes after eating sugar-free, tooth-friendly xylitol with zero calories. And to satisfy your taste buds, Quip added a long-lasting mint flavor, crunchy tri-layer design, and stamped it all with the classic Quip tongue. The slim travel-ready dispenser, available in five colors, metal or plastic, packs and protects up to 10 gum pieces at a time, and fits in just about any purse or pocket for on-the-go. And in a world where we all need to be extra safe and hygienic, the quick-release button means you can still share with friends. No wrappers, hands, or hassle. And a gum refill plan for a gift that keeps on giving all year round. Quip's customizable subscription Let's you chew and share at your own pace and not worry about running out. Plus, the more you buy, the more you save with bulk discounts on extra gum packs. It's not a substitute for brushing and flossing, but it is a great support for your oral health. And if you pair it with the Quip Electric Toothbrush for adults and kids, that refillable floss and more great products right now, go for it. And in addition to gum packs, Quip also delivers fresh breadhead, brush head, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months from five bucks. Shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the misery of in-store shopping. So go to getquip.com slash commentary right now, and you get a free plastic dispenser with any refill plan. That's a free dispenser at getquip.com slash commentary. Spread good oral habits this season and join the over five million mouths already using Quip. Get chewing for less than $2 per gum pack, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash commentary quip, the good habits company. So anybody got anything to tell me? I, I want to add. Yes. Yeah, I want to add something that that uh, to point out another contradiction here, because Ezra Klein and the sort of elite uh, liberal opinion saying that there's no inherent dignity in work actually flies in the face of the political messaging of the Democratic Party, which is that we have, you know, there is dignity in work, but only if it has a, you know, certain amount of money paid per hour and is a unionized job. And, you know, Biden actually made dignity one of his, uh, particularly during the primary, he was talking about the dignity of work all the time. And we had to hear about his lunch pail and his dad. And like, it, this was a constant theme. Now, granted, cynically, this was a great political ploy for him reaching out to particularly to white working class voters. But again, the, the, the contradictions in play here on the left are interesting because um, they have long tried to see themselves as the kind of kinder, gentler opposition to the conservative arguments about personal responsibility and about the true dignity of work, which is, as Abe was uh, talking about, when it's taken away or it's made much more comfortable not to work can lead to a kind of soulless uh 
uh, moment. And I think there are ways to bridge it. I mean, my friend Matt Crawford years ago wrote a wonderful book called Shop Classes Soulcraft, which actually explored the, the irony that you were talking about, John, which is that technocratic folks, thought workers think that what they do is particularly dignified and worthwhile, but look down on those who work with their hands. He's done both. He was a mechanic and a philosopher. And he brings a really interesting perspective on this that I think both sides could draw something from. But when we're talking about uh, what Ezra Klein is discussing, there, there's a clear political purpose here, which is to say there is, you know, that the kind of work that you would do in an Amazon warehouse, for example, isn't meaningful to you. That's a very the, the conservative response to that can only be that's an individual choice. The government and technocratically doesn't get to tell you what is what what is dignified or, or necessary for you to do. And the government shouldn't be the one who's left holding the bag if someone decides to have six children out of wedlock and then can't make a living like we will support the kids. You want to make sure that they're fed and clothed and housed. But the idea that there is some social problem here that's absent of individual and personal responsibility isn't the case. And, and they're not going to address that. Um, and I think we're getting further away from those sorts of arguments, even on the right, um, than we used to be. And, you know, we've also been through a year in which wh- wh- whom have we celebrated? Frontline workers. Who right. are the frontline workers? They're delivery people and nurses. Granted, nurses are it's a, a different category, but, you know, healthcare workers. Grocery store nursing workers. Homes, yeah. Grocery store workers. Amazon warehouse employees who are fulfilling the orders that we are making since we don't go into stores to buy things anymore. So uh, they, given this, we talk about this in part so that they will understand that we value what they do and therefore we believe that it's something that has dignity. And this, you know, notion that the, you know, neurasthenic you know, uh, pseudo-intellectuals walk around uh, talking about what it's like for people and how they need to live on the dole because that'll be better for them is, is, is morally unspeakable. I mean, as, you know, Abe, Abe says, like, when in history has anyone been granted dignity by, by, by not taking care of themselves? You know, there's a great Russian literature in the 19th century. Uh, Ivan Goncharov's Oblomov and the and the plays of Anton Chekhov are about the depression that hits the upper classes when they are cursed with enough income to have nothing to do all day, and how they go crazy with indolence. And I'm not saying that people are indolent, particularly not if they have six children at home. No one is indolent under those circumstances, but they certainly aren't living. You know, but certainly if they were living in a condition in which they were waiting every two weeks for, you know, for a handout um, and were totally bereft of uh, agency otherwise, um, that is the, you know, that is that is the opposite of dignity. There is a profound political realignment underway that Joe Biden is not reflective of and has not caught up with, and that is the migration of working class voters into the Republican coalition and the suburban intellectual of better educated, more affluent voters who traditionally voted Republican into the Democratic column. And Joe Biden is behind that tradition or that, that shift. And it's, you know, it's, it's evident in the way they talk about the minimum wage, for example, whereas eliminating poverty is great, but killing 1.4 million jobs isn't really that big a deal because the jobs aren't that great to begin with. Um, but there's a right wing way to do this, too. It's the Milton Friedman prescription. 
which Republicans, I would be shocked if they didn't embrace more fully as a working class party, which would be to provide a base level minimum income universally in exchange for the elimination of a whole lot of welfare programs. Most of them, in fact. Um, that is, and that is, that is, imagine that Democrats would be too favorable towards such a prospect. Right. Well, that is the, that is the question that, that, that debate has not begun yet. And that is a 20 year debate. That is not a five year debate or a two year debate. That is a 20 year debate about how best, and it is the, it is the debate of Western civilization uh, since the enlightenment, which is how best to deal with the populations that have the least capacity to thrive and what to, what to do to help them figure out how to thrive. And that is an ongoing conversation, but certainly our answer to it, as we can see, has not been the greatest of answers, just like there may it may be unanswerable, but... Uh, the debate is never ending. And with that, we've helped, we've kept you for too long. If you've reached this point, thank you very much for, thank you very much for tolerating our, our, our loquaciousness. And we will be back to you tomorrow uh, with similar, similar loquaciousness, I fear um, for Noah, Abe and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the camera, keep that. I was about to say, keep the camera burning <laughs> because I'm looking at Abe, Noah and Christine on, on our, on our, uh, little uh, zoom chat here so keep the candle burning